0: Dripping Down
1: Science
2: The Naked Scientists Hello, welcome to this week's Naked Scientists with Helen Scales, hi Helen Hi And with me Chris Smith Now this week coming up is a new way to rewrite road markings just by pressing a button Also we'll be finding out how researchers have come up with a strategy to make sure that you execute the perfect penalty shootout and also how scientists have solved a 100-year-old mystery by identifying strange strange infectious crystals that appear inside the cells of insects and then make them change colour. Helen.
3: And also this week we're unravelling the mystery of mummies and other ancient archaeological discoveries that have been dug up in Peru by London University's Lawrence Owens. Brace yourself because we'll be hearing some gruesome stories of diseases, stillbirths and abuse. But on a lighter note, Durham University's Keith Dobley will be explaining where all of our domestic animals come from, including man's best friend, the humble pooch. The
4: Naked Scientists podcast, powered
2: by UK Fast, the UK's best hosting provider. On the web at UKFast.net. First up this week, scientists have cracked a rather interesting puzzle, which is it's rush hour. You've got lots of cars on the road, and they're fighting for space. How do we make the roads more efficient places for cars to be so that we can rewrite road markings in such a way that we can make most use of the road. Well, wouldn't it be really good, rather than having to put loads of signs and barriers and that kind of things, if you could just click a mouse button and the road markings would change so that some lanes would become one direction and some lanes another? Well, that's what's on the mind of electricity and engineering giant Philips, because they filed a patent this week for these literally rewritable road markings. Now, here's how it works. Very clever. There's a company in America that invented a few years ago something called E-Ink, and what this consists of are tiny capsules which are filled with oil, and inside the oil is a dye and the dye molecules are charged and what you can do is apply to these tiny capsules an electric charge and the electric charge because like charges repel will cause the dye with a charge to spring to the top of the capsule so it becomes visible so what you have uh, what you can do and what Philips are planning to do is to produce these very thin strips of ult- ultra thin but very robust plastic which are made entirely of these capsules and they would have a thin network of wires running under the road, and when you wanted to rewrite the road markings, you could just click your mouse. The road markings would change by activating some of these capsules, and they would then become visible to drivers. Very quick way to make the road a much more streamlined place, I suppose.
3: It sounds like fun. I just I thought, I wonder if we could spell things out in these uh, in this new way. Perhaps you know, flash up messages to drivers to slow down or something. Perhaps. I thought
2: you were going to say advertising or something. <coughs> It'd be a great Maybe way, way to flash actually, up. Yeah. Listen to the Naked Scientists, which would be a really good thing to do. I
3: we have to pay for that. <laughs> people are very
2: worried about this being uneconomical. But it actually, right, yeah. it, it is economical, uh, or it does make good economical sense, Helen, for the simple reason that this only uses energy when it's actually being changed. So once it's got the new configuration, it's completely stable, doesn't, doesn't consume any more power. So the result of that is that it only uses energy when you change it the rest of the time. Doesn't cost anything. And
3: think of all those plastic cones that we wouldn't no longer have any use for, that'd be great. But on another note, um, England might have been kicked out of the World Cup last year on penalties, but according to a recent scientific study, the goalie could have had more influence on the direction of the ball than he might have imagined. So penalty kicks in soccer matches put the poor goalies under such nerve wracking conditions that on average actually, I'm gonna ask Chris here, how many ti- how what percentage do you think, Chris, of um of uh, um, penalty kicks actually are uh, saved. What do you think?
2: Saved, saved. Um, five percent.
3: No, it's, not. it's actually 18%, which is pretty low, I think, still, considering. I mean, it's a huge I goal, still think it's so... amazing
2: you can save one in five of them it's, because it's yeah, just the ball could go really, anywhere in that, in that area. It's a it?
3: large area. But anyway, um, some soccer fans apparently have thought for a while that may, the goal the goalie might actually be able to have some influence on where the goals are kicked um, by basically standing slightly to the left or right side of the goal. And it turns out that they were actually right. A team of scientists led by Professor Rich Masters from the Institute of Human Performance, performance at the University of Hong Kong, had the, took on the task of watching 200 clips of goal kicks to test out this idea. And what they found was that the penalty takers were actually more likely to shoot towards the side of the goal that is appeared bigger to them, that had more space.
2: Did the goalie go there, though?
3: And They, they didn't, actually. This is the really strange thing. It was about 96% of the time the goalies would actually stand either to the left or to the right um, by, on average, about 10 centimetres. But strangely, there was absolutely no association between the side that they stood on and the side that they dived towards so they're clearly not kind of deliberately undergoing the strategy of standing on one side and then diving in the other direction Don't you think that's
2: strange that they're not doing that because it's you'd think strange. that this is such a high profile industry you'd have thought with people working for the salaries they do that they would have kind of thrown some science at this a long while know, ago and maybe tried to work think, this out.
3: Maybe there's other factors that goalies have got going through their minds at the time and they're actually responding to other factors but um, I mean it is rather surprising this is the case and these researchers um, undertook this research and took into account other factors that they thought might influence the direction of a kick but even so basically those kicks did definitely go into the side that had more space and they also took all their data and analysed it and decided that the sort of the perfect position for the goalie to be in would be between 6 and 10 centimetres to one side and that they should if they it's not enough perhaps for the penalty taker to deliberately notice that the goalie was on one side or the other but it's still about 10% more chance of them um of the goal being saved if the goalie jumped in the direction of the larger side of the goal so I don't know it's, it all seems kind of it seems fairly obvious to me, but maybe this would make a difference. Perhaps.
2: Well, I think you should quit being a marine biologist and you should well, go into football coaching. Perhaps, Helen, so. maybe brilliant.
3: next time, the next World Cup, you know. Well, I think I'll we need it. Looking at the performance oh, of our last yes. um,
2: attempts, but now look, let's let's sort of turn our attention now to the world of insects. So, from football to insects, and this is a really interesting study because hundred years ago, scientists spotted these interesting crystals that kept cropping up in the cells of some in- insects, including silkworms, the things that we use to make nice silk scarves and things. And what they noticed was that these crystals appear in the cells and they're infectious. You can take some of these crystals and put them on other insects and the other insects seem to, to catch this funny disease where their cells end up with crystals in them and the insect becomes sort of white in colour because its cells are so crammed with these funny crystals. No one knew what they were, though, until now because there's a researcher at the University of Auckland whose name is Peter Metcalf. And this week he's published this paper in the journal Nature where he managed to get some tiny samples of these crystals. They're about 1 500th of a millimetre across, so they're absolutely minuscule. And he zapped them with X-rays. Now why this is important is when you blast the crystals with X-rays, the X-rays pass into the structure and then they get sort of bashed or ricocheted around by the structure. And the pattern that you measure of where the X-rays are bouncing about all over the place, it's called a diffraction pattern, you can work out what must be inside the crystal based on where the x-rays are scattered. It's, it's fairly standard technique, but no one had done it to these crystals. And what they found is that they're, they're ingenious. They're a really clever sarcophagus, and I thought this story was relevant for the simple reason that we're talking about mummies this week. They're a sort of viral sarcophagus, because inside this very dense crystal is this perfect sort of holding receptacle for the, an insect virus, and the virus sits in there, sometimes just singly, sometimes in multiple numbers, and the viruses are quite delicate. But with this big, robust crystal around them, which is really, really hardy, when the insect dies and, they, and, the, and the crystals end up in the soil, because most of these insect viruses get spread around in the soil, they're really stable and they p- can protect the virus inside its sarcophagus in just the same way that mummies last for donkey's ears inside their pyramids, inside their sarcophagi. And when another insect comes along and blunders into the crystal, the virus can come out and infect it. So it's a really cunning way to actually make sure that you're protected in the environment for a really long time. But apart from solving the mystery... This is a really exciting bit. You don't just have to put viruses in there because they now know the structure. They now know how it works. You could use it for other things. You could put viruses, for instance, to be used as vaccines and make a very long-lived vaccine in there or other chemicals that you wanted to deliver or store.
3: So and have we also kind of cracked being able to take this virus out of... Because I imagine it's um, quite an economic problem if it's, if it's messing up silk farms and so on. Are we actually now able to deal with this um, virus and stop these... Um from getting infected. Is that kind of, have we solved that problem now as well?
2: That's what they're saying. That Now we know how these things actually stabilise the viruses, it might be possible to, to engineer a way to destabilise these miniature sarcophagi, make them fall apart, so you can solve the problem. Because, it, as you say, big problem for the silk industry. Yeah.
3: Excellent, that sounds good. Now, OK, I have to apologise once again. that uh, I can't let one episode of me being on The Naked Scientist go by without talking about my favourite animals, the fish. So, um, well, when is a fish not a fish?
2: Is this a joke?
3: It isn't a joke at all, but it's not very funny anyway. But a fish is not a fish when it's a round-scale spearfish. Can I ask you a question? Okay, go ahead.
2: What's the heavy... What what part of a fish weighs the most?
3: Um, I don't know. You
2: should know, because it's your name, the scales, of course.
3: (laughs) Thank you. Anyway, sorry, that's terrible. But let me carry on. But basically... uh, I do have a case of mistaken identity in the northwest Atlantic Ocean, which has put a worrying question mark over the future survival of a magnificent fast-swimming fish from the open ocean called the white marlin. Now, for years, the number of white marlin that live off the coast of North America has been estimated from catches by commercial fishing boats as well as sport fishermen who like to pit themselves against these fast-moving creatures. Um, And recently, the species has failed to gain protection under the US Endangered Species List because it was thought the species wasn't declining fast enough to qualify for listing but it now turns out that it could in fact there could in fact be far fewer white marlin left in the world than previously thought because another fish called the round scale spearfish has been confirmed as being an almost perfect match for the white marlin but it is in fact a different species Now, we've known about this fish, the round-scale spearfish, for about 170 years, but a team of scientists from the Guy Harvey Research Institute at NOVA Southeastern University and the NOAA Fisheries Service Southeast Fisheries Centre in Miami have recently been the first to fully describe this species, and they've discovered that, going on looks alone, it's almost identical to this white marlin, except the scales in the mid-part of its body are slightly rounded. So that's a good name for it, the round-scale spearfish. And it's also very much genetically different. It's got very strikingly different DNA. So it's undoubtedly a distinct species of billfish, which is this group of animals, um, pelagic fish including um, the blue and white marlin, as well as Mediterranean species like the spearfish and sailfish. But of course, um, because of these differences being so tiny, it's not surprising that fishermen and experts have um, overlooked the round-scale spearfish in the past. And the problem now is that we really don't have a clear idea of how many white marlin or indeed how many round-scale spearfish there are left in the world. And sadly, it could mean that the white marlin are far less abundant than previous estimates suggested. And they could indeed be much closer to being pushed to the brink of extinction than we used to think.
2: Sounds fishy to me. It's so the Naked Scientists with Dr Chris and Dr Helen. In a second we'll be talking about science of archaeology and we'll be talking with University of London's Lawrence Owens about that, what he's been digging up in Peru, including ancient mummies, evidence of abuse, what kind of diseases people suffered from and how people underwent torture and all kinds of horrible things. And also waiting in the wings is University of Durham's Keith Dobney who's going to be talking about where our humble pooch came from, in other words, animal domestication. Helen.
3: Cool. And remember, we've got our teaser question going as well. So we're asking you this week, why are Egyptian mummies called mummies? Any ideas at all? Give us a call 08459 2000. Send us an email, chris at com, And there's a text message too. And I've got to reach for the number for that. What's the text message number, Chris?
2: 7786 Rosie's in Saffron Warden and thinks that they're called mummies because they're wrapped up in bandages. John in Clacton says, it's because mummy is short for mummification. Dave in Great Yarmouth's definitely on the right lines. Betty in Northampton. Ditto. What do you think the answer is? Sorting out the sparks from the quarks. The Naked Scientists. For more information, get online at nakedscientists.com. Now, we had some interesting questions, but last week, Helen, I have to tell you about this one because you weren't here and... And it was uh, me and and cat here and we said this question from Ben who's age 10 is in Norfolk and he said how do mobile phones affect fuel pumps and and cat gave the answer and it spawned a pretty big discussion this week. I've given you some of them. Yeah, things.
3: I've got a couple of emails in front of me here. Um, so I've got an email here from Bernie, thanks for writing in, and he says um, that radio waves can and do induce currents in conductors. So you would need um, to have some kind of conductor and perhaps he suggests maybe a neck chain that happens to be just the right length to match the frequency of the radio waves being emitted by your mobile phone. And that perhaps that would be um, basically enough to create a spark. Um, and blow up your petrol so that's one idea I don't know about that
2: Randy Heish is listening to us in the States and says that his son's mobile phone broke so he took it to pieces and he works for IBM so it does, it does a lot of engineering so he's quite clever at this kind of thing took it to pieces Uh, and he said it's very interesting the vibrator that you find in the phone so that when you put it on silent it buzzes in your pocket it's just a motor with uh, a counterweight asymmetrically placed on it so as this counterweight goes round of course it it creates a vibrating sensation he says it's really interesting because the contacts are just lightly pressed onto the surface of the printed circuit board inside the phone and so his phone, his son's phone stopped working because the the motor had just vibrated itself loose he says those contacts um, could quite easily, if they just moved a little tiny fraction of an inch away Away from the circuit board trigger a spark so that's one way in which you could ignite petrol
3: okay if your spark was close enough to your petrol i suppose um i've got another email here from john swainsbury in saffron walden thanks again for your email um and his idea is that um nothing to do with sparks at all in fact but that maybe um that the mobile phone signal might have uh, used to interact with the old analog type um gauge on the petrol pumps telling you how much petrol you had been putting into your um, petrol tank and that perhaps you were getting sort of wrong readings because of that and so maybe, I don't know if it made you have more petrol or less petrol than you actually did but maybe there was some interference going on there so he that's another it idea moment,
2: wouldn't it? especially with this fuel furore that's going on at certain retailers
3: absolutely yes
2: I saw there was a brilliant cartoon on the front page of the Daily Telegraph uh, earlier this week and it had uh, two people coming out of the front of their house a man and a lady and the guy is saying to his wife um Well, if we're off to visit your mother, maybe I should put some petrol in the car. (laughs) I know how he feels. <laughs> I've also got uh, this which I think uh, I think this is the bottom line here it's from Gavin in Seattle and he was listening to our podcast this week, nakedscientist.com forward slash podcast and he says just been listening to the podcast you are talking about the risk cell phones spark, uh, phone sparking off gasoline. There's an American show which is called Mythbusters where they attempted this experiment they built a large tank or a sort of glass cell, they filled it with gasoline fumes and then they had a mobile phone in there which they operated remotely and they rang it and rang it and rang it and they were unable to detonate the, this whole gas-filled chamber full of, full of petrol fumes. They couldn't get the mobile phone to set it off. So he says, nah, don't, don't believe it.
3: So. I don't think so. I think we're all right, but uh, I don't know. i guess." So. got a
2: question here from Connor who's in Tillingham, Helen. He says, why is it that when he has a cup of coffee, the coaster that the coffee's resting on gets lifted up when he lifts the mug up? The bottom of the mug is completely dry.
3: The bottom of the mug's completely dry? I was going to say some kind of suction because it was a little bit of wet around the edge of the cup but other than that I don't know is it made a seal and just changed the temperature of the air under that little bit because you've got a rim so you've got a little pocket of air just inside and the air so it will be heated up so it would expand. Would that make a suction there? I well, I reckon this is what, I reckon you're
2: on the right lines. I think what's going with Colin's cup of coffee is that the hot base of the cup, when you put it down on the coaster, as you say, it's hot. It expands the air in that tiny dimple in the bottom of the mug. That air gets hot and gets pushed out under the edges of the mug. Okay. The coffee cup then cools down. The air contracts again, and this draws the coaster. I would say sucks, but air pressure, there's no such thing as a suck. There's a, there's a vacuum. Yes. So this draws the coaster okay, up against like the that. base of the coffee cup and sticks it there.
3: Lawrence, is, he, was, he was definitely uh, shaking his head at what I had to say, but nodding at yours, so we agree there. Good stuff.
2: The Naked
1: Scientists, supported by The Welcome Trust.
2: Now it's time for our bit of kitchen science and we're off to look into how humans made fire and uh, we sent our very own caveman Dave Ansell and Derek Thorne to a garden in Cambridge to show Isabella and Eloise why some fires end up burning a bit faster than others. Hi guys.
4: Hello there, welcome to Cambridge. We're actually in a garden here and in front of us is a nice roaring fire which we're going to be doing some stuff with. Um, just a quick reminder for you firstly though, please don't try this experiment at home. Uh, we're doing it with Dave who is going to be very, very safe about it but we'd rather you didn't try it at home. Um, now then, Dave, what is it we going to be looking at today we're going to find out how to burn things really fast okay burning things really fast so if you're not hooked already then just keep listening anyway because it is going to be very cool and we've also got two helpers with us who've been very kind to come and help us burn things really fast basically Uh, so could you tell me your names and ages please
5: Isabella and my age is seven
4: okay thank you and yourself
5: Eloise and my age is seven
4: Fantastic. Okay, well, thank you very much for both of you for coming down. Now, before we get on to the experiment, I'd just like to ask you what you guys like about science. So, Isabella, what do you like about science?
5: I like electricity.
4: Okay, and stuff like that. Okay, and then what about you, Ellie?
5: I like rocks and
6: soils.
4: Oh, rocks and soils. Okay, I think we've got some very well-educated guys here. That's cool. Okay, Dave, so uh, we've got in front of us um, a fire, basically. It's kind of roaring away quite nicely in this kind of metal trough. Uh, So what is it we're going to be doing with it? First of all, we're going to have a look at this fire. And can
7: I ask Eloise... Does it, how fast do you think this fire is burning at the moment? Quite quickly. Quite quickly? How long do you think it would burn for?
5: A few hours, maybe? A
7: few hours, yeah, because it's got logs on it, hasn't it? It's got quite hefty logs on there. Yeah, it's got some big hefty logs, and it's just sort of burning away gently as you'd expect a fire to. Now, what we're going to do is I've given Eloise and Isabella a whole lot of bits of paper scrunched up. I want them to put it on the fire and see what
4: happens to the fire. OK, here we go then. So, um, Isabella and Eloise, I wonder if you could just dump those bits of paper on the fire and tell us what happens. OK, so on, on they go.
5: It's much getting much bigger.
4: Yeah, so how quickly is that burning now then, Ellie?
5: Really, really fast.
4: Yeah, exactly. So really within five, ten seconds of us putting that that paper on there, it's really roaring away. But then how long do you think it's going to go for, Isabella? A
6: few hours.
4: Oh, yeah, OK. Because the thing is, I reckon it's already dying down because all that newspaper's going quite black. What do you think,
6: Ellie? Yeah.
4: Yeah, OK. Well, Dave, what, what are we seeing here? Well, paper's made out of wood, just
7: like a lump of wood is. So they're both made out of the same material, so the difference can't be the material. So now if we think about a piece of paper, here I've got a big piece of newspaper. If you open it up, how much of sort of edge has the newspaper got? How much surface has it got?
6: Quite a lot.
7: Yeah, OK then. So, so what does that show us, Dave? Yes, yeah, because paper's very thin, it's got lots and lots of surface for, its, for a certain amount of wood. And, c- and because paper can only burn, paper can only burn on the edge, it means it can burn in lots of places at the same time, so it'll burn really quickly. And the paper fire has almost burnt down completely now. So now we're going to have a look at something which has got even more surface than paper. Okay right. then, so Dave, what have you got there? Well, can you guys have a look at this and tell me what it looks like?
6: Flour, it looks a bit like flour.
7: Can you see what it says on the tin?
6: Custard.
7: Powder. OK, it's custard powder. OK, what's special about that, Dave? Well, if you, custard powder is a powder and it's got really, really, really tiny lumps. And if you imagine, then there's like billions and billions of lumps in this little handful. So, because they're so small, it's got an incredibly big surface area. So it can burn everywhere at once really quickly. Shall we see if we can burn it?
6: Yes. Yeah.
4: All right, OK, so how are you going to do that, Dave? I'm going to put a bit of it in a tube here. OK, so Dave's got this kind of rubber tube, which is about a metre long and fairly thin... And he's also got a blowtorch on the table just next to us, which is burning away with a kind of a purple flame. Um, And uh, we're all going to be very safe and keep our distance while Dave does this. But, yeah, Dave, what are you going to do? The idea is to blow
7: the custard powder through and fill it with lots of air around it and blow it through the flame. OK, Dave,
4: so uh, are you ready? I'm ready. We'll see if it works. OK, guys, tell us what you see. OK, so what did you see there?
5: I saw the flame getting a bit bigger.
4: So at the end of the tube there, I mean, Dave was basically blowing some custard powder right out of the tube. He's packing it into the tube and then he's blowing it out of the tube over the flame. And very, very briefly there was kind of a big, I don't know, plume of, of flame, I suppose. It was all rather red. Here we go. Here we go again. All right. So what did you guys see there then? What, what did you see, Ellie?
5: It got very, very big this time.
4: Yeah, yeah. OK. And Isabella, how, how big was that plume, do you think? How, how many centimetres did you, do you think it was?
6: Well, about 50
4: yeah, OK, so maybe it stretched about 50 centimetres from the end of the tube. So, yeah, quite a big plume of smoke compared to this little Bunsen burner-type flame we've got from the blowtorch. So, so there you go, and it seemed to burn very well, didn't it? So, so yeah, I mean, what were, we, what were we seeing there, Dave? Well, yeah, because a custard powder needs oxygen to burn,
7: it's, it can only burn on its surface. And because it's so small, it can, bur- it can burn everywhere it runs, runs really quickly, and you get basically a fireball coming up. With things like explosives, the reason why they burn so quickly is because the oxygen is actually locked up inside their makeup um if you get something like tnt it's actually in the same molecule as the fuel so it's can burn incredibly quickly and so fast it explodes and blows things up in fact there's been big problems with flour mills because flour is like a dust and if you get flour mixed with air then you add a spark what do you think would happen to it
5: it would burn so quickly and the fire would get very big
7: Yeah, okay. Sounds like there'd be a really big explosion. What do you say, Dave? Yeah, in fact, they've blown up. It was a big problem in the Middle Ages. They kept blowing up flour mills because of this dust explosion. Okay, right. So, have we now got over this problem, I suppose? No, it still happens occasionally, but I think health and safety is on it quite hard.
4: All right, all right. Well, that's what we like to hear. Okay. well, thanks very much for setting that up, Dave, and thanks very much to you guys as well, Ellie and Isabella. And uh, just a final reminder, please don't try this one at home at all. We've been doing it safely here, but we would not like you to do it at home. Uh, And otherwise, that's about it. So we'll see you again next time.
2: Thank you very much Derek, Dave, Isabella and Eloise who are in Cambridge this evening. Next week we'll be helping you to see the invisible and if you want to take part then you're going to need to get hold of these things. You're going to need some bicarbonate of soda, some vinegar, a torch with the end taken off so the bulbs exposed and then we'll explain what you need to do with it next week.
3: Sounds intriguing. I shall definitely be trying myself. But we want to know from you today, our teaser question for this week is, why are Egyptian mummies called mummies? something I've never certainly thought about before. I've just always taken it as read. But do you have any ideas why that is? We've had um, some answers coming in. We've got um, an email here from Rowena in Malden. And I'm afraid... Um, actually, I think that's not quite right. Um, so I'm going to give Rowan another chance if she wants to have another guess. That wasn't quite on the nose, but thanks for your email. But do give us a call, 08459 2000. Text messages can come in on 07786 And as ever, you can email us, chris at nakedscientist.com.
2: That's right, and if you have any questions for our guest this week, we are talking with uh, Lawrence Owens very shortly. He's been to Peru digging up ancient peoples. If you want to know what kind of diseases they suffered from, how scientists dissect what they actually died from, even what they ate... And also Keith Dobney is waiting in the wings to talk about how animals became domesticated. Any questions on that? Same numbers. We've got some interesting speculations coming in on our teaser this week. Why do we we call mummies what we call mummies? But no one's winning our prize as yet, which is a mud mud powered clock you can wow your friends with this it's been kindly donated by the guys at noisemakers noisemakers noisemakers.org.uk they're a group of scientists who like to make a big noise about science laying the facts bare the
1: naked scientists
3: you're listening to the naked scientists and now it's time to go winging our way across the atlantic to hear from the science update team from bob hershon and chelsea wald hi guys this week
5: for the naked scientists how physics is improving the products you buy I'm going to talk about annoying rattling sounds in cars, but first, Chelsea has this story about some high-end wood.
6: Curly birch is a rare natural mutation of the silver birch tree, and furniture makers love its wavy grain. It costs ten times as much as its non-curly counterpart, which is used for pulp. Now, scientists in Finland, where silver birch is grown, have found a way to tell the difference between the two when they're young. That could help foresters decide which trees to call and which to keep. Physicist Ari Salmi of the University of Helsinki says the technique uses high-frequency sound waves called ultrasound.
0: We launch
2: ultrasonic waves into the wood and study the time of flight through the sample. And from this time of flight, we determine whether it's curly or not.
6: He says the sound waves go faster through the harder curly birch. Their preliminary results show the method is 93% accurate.
5: Thanks, Chelsea. your car rattle like an old washing machine? Preventing annoying interior noises is surprisingly tough, so automakers asked Purdue University engineer Doug Adams and his colleagues to work on it. His team started with the headrest, which is held in place by a pin that slides along a groove in the adjustable metal posts.
2: So there's this trade-off. You want people to be able to adjust that headrest easily, but you don't want to make it too easy because that means there's too much free play in there that would result in this rattling
5: phenomenon. They're tinkering with the friction between the pin and the groove and the mass, shape, and stiffness of the hardware. But the ultimate goal is to develop computer models that will allow automakers to spot potential noise problems before they build the car.
6: Thanks, Bob. Next time, we'll talk about the costs and benefits of the polio vaccine as well as the next generation of antiviral drugs. Until then, I'm Chelsea Wald.
5: And I'm Bob Hirschhorn for AAAS, the Science Society. Back to you, Naked Scientists.
6: Thanks, guys. That's
3: great. And always remember, if you want to find out more about Science Update, you can go to their website, www, as they say in the States, scienceupdate.com. I think that's right, isn't it?
2: (laughs) Thanks, Helen. It's the Naked Scientists, Dr Chris and Dr Helen. And this week, we're exploring the science of archaeology. And First up, Lawrence Owens is with us from the University of London. Hi, Lawrence. Thanks for coming along. (laughs) How are you doing? Now, you've been to Peru and looking at ancient civilizations there, but how old are are the people that you've been trying to understand the history of?
8: Um, The ones I'm working on are about 2,500 to about 1,000 years old, but uh, they get much older there, of course.
2: How do they fit into our understanding of how mankind covered the earth and, and migrated to various places and then, and then took up residence in these various countries?
8: Well, of course, the big question is migration from Asia because um, South American populations and Native Americans came across from Asia originally. We're not quite sure when, and so these, these kinds of projects are addressing human variation to see how much variation there is and therefore how long they've been there. So, so literally, it fits in with that.: lo- looking at their genetic... Ancestry, to see if you can understand who went where when? Basically, yes. I mean, to find out what they were, of course, and having found out what they were, find out who they were and a bit more about them. So these people who lived in Peru, you've already said Asia. So how would they have got there? Um, They would have come across the the straits, of course, originally during the last ice ages, we think. But, of course, it's far more complex than we originally believed, naturally, as everything is in science. And so we have actually various migrations. There was one much earlier, one much later. And so we're talking maybe 15,000 years ago. But someone's argued there's a site there from 30,000 years ago. So we're not really quite sure yet. We'll get there in the end.
2: (laughs) So these individuals decided to lock up their dead in
8: sort of time capsules for us to discover today. They mummified them. Why were they doing that? Um, well, there's various beliefs, really. I mean, the oldest, oldest uh, mummies in the world, in fact, are from Chile, and they we used to carry them round with them as their family members because they didn't want to leave them behind when they left. And so they used to do all kinds of weird things, deflesh them, tie them together with mud and, like, with strips of uh, their cloth and so on, and dress them in their own clothes, give them a lovely mask painted red or black and white, and then tote them round for a thousand years or so. So these individuals obviously weren't rooted to the spot.
2: They weren't living in settlements. That's why they
8: wanted that mobile mobile mummy, if you like. <laughs> That's right, yeah, a mummy for all seasons. Yes, and so they were carrying them around with them for a very long time, but of course these were fisher folk. They are living on the coast in Chile. Uh, later on, say maybe two, 3000 BC, people started settling down and that's when the really flamboyant architecture and so forth linked to mummies started to appear. So what,
2: what did they actually do in terms of preserving them? How did they, in, in Peru, because we've asked about Egyptian mummies, but how did did Peruvian mummies end up getting getting preserved? What well, did they do?
8: Often, accidentally, they used to bury them in hot sand, and that was all it really took. I mean, in some cases, there's a, a, the, the body has been modified; it's been partly defleshed, or a bit of the innards have been taken out, or things like that. But they never got to the same kind of level of sophistication, if you like as the Egyptians did with, you know, draining the brain out of the nose and all the other disgusting things they used to do.
3: So do we think it was a deliberate thing, or was this almost kind of, we were burying them, and that's why they buried them, because there was sand, a bit like we would just bury people, you know, near to where we live today, sort of thing. Was it kind of accidental, or would, do we think they really were trying to preserve the bodies for a reason?
8: Well, the funny thing is, in both both Egypt and in uh, Peru, as far as you can make out, mummification appears to have originally happened by accident, and people then capitalised on that and went on further. And so, yes, originally it was partly accidental, But as time went by and towards the Inca Empire, they really made efforts to to go the full hog. How well preserved are they? Some of them are phenomenally well-preserved. I mean, the one, the ice maiden, for example, on the top of the Andes, she's uh, absolutely stunning. I mean, she looks like she would get up and walk away, and she's um, 800 years old or so. Some of them are a bit dicey, to be honest. I mean, some of the ones on my site are terrible, but they're still very informative, and so you can find out a great deal about them. Can you get DNA from them? You can, and, and is, we is are a good doing quality so. DNA? Um, so far, it seems to be good, good signs, and there's no contamination and so forth, and so it looks like we could have a very promising sort of data set from there.
2: And does it give you any clues as to the kinds of things that they ate, died from, that kind of thing?
8: Um, well, the DNA, we're normally uh, looking at it for variation purposes, just to see where they came from and what was going on. But um, the things like what they died from and so on are, are more my area. You see, I rather than doing all the genes and the complex stuff, I like to rely on the bodies themselves. And so I'm looking at their teeth and their bones and their stature and everything else about them to f- try and find out what they're all about. So what kind of clues can you get from bones and teeth as to what happened to people? Oh, how long do you have? Uh, loads of things. Basically, you can find out everything about somebody you would find out from talking to somebody apart from their name you can find everything out about them and also things that they wouldn't want you to know and so you're going on a blind date almost asking all these rather random searching questions and you can also find out things like how much they actually weigh how old they actually are and things like that you couldn't really necessarily ask on a blind date and so it's quite intriguing
3: and are you getting a good sort of cross-section of the population in these mummies, or is it perhaps just the elite classes who are getting mummified, or are you really getting an idea of what everyone was up to? Is it sort of you know, everyone was eventually put in the ground in this way?
8: Um, well, the poshest burials, if you like, are in these really nice and very showy tombs, and so we naturally know they are from a certain screeve social group. Um, but I mean, in my site, there's 80,000 burials uh, rough, roughly on this site, and people came from all over South America to be buried there. It was important to Um, pre-hispanic groups as mecca is say to muslims today or jerusalem to christians and so therefore we have virtually all parts of society all of whom wanted to come and be buried or at least consult the oracle at this site
2: so looking at the bones and things what sorts of diseases did people have then and did they die from things different to what we would expect people who were living there to die from today if you look at modern contemporary populations there
8: um, well, yes, and of course, in the olden days, you have to bear in mind that most causes of death you can't really ascertain because it's a fever that can knock you on the head in a couple of days that wouldn't really happen anymore. And also, of course, you have to bear in mind that diseases would suddenly arrive, say, with the explorers from Europe, and that wiped out millions, maybe up to nine million people in total. So wh- what did we, when we went to South America, what did we give these people? Oh, Lord. Um, the, the common cold would be enough. Flu. Um, things In many cases, it's just they died in huge numbers Measles. with sores on the Measles. It, it, anything, anything at all like it's that presumably, is it? Soapox as well, yes, indeed. But the thing is, these leave a little sign on the bones, unless you actually do a genetic test. But in the, in, in the pre-Hispanic period, they died from things like syphilis, which they did have there before we got there, so not all to blame, <laughs> tuberculosis, um, and, of course, lots of uh, interpersonal violence, things like Leishmaniasis, which is something worth avoiding. if parasites, you ever get the chance. Yeah. Nasty parasites, indeed. And all kinds of other sort of afflictions. But how do like the bones those. tell you that? Um, then, in fact, in, that, in the Leishmaniasis' case, you actually do, you do genetics on it and you can actually isolate it. Um, but also you can look at a certain morphology and pathology of the face and it rots away the entire middle of the mouth. S- and also- S- what about syphilis? Because doesn't, doesn't syphilis destroy the nose? Uh, syphilis can destroy various bits of you. There's four diseases in syphilis and so different levels of severity. And so it starts off with a kind of a rather nasty-looking acne, basically, on the skull, if you can imagine that. And it goes all the way through to venereal syphilis. It takes away most of your face and leaves your face an entire... Mess. It's disgusting.
3: quite <laughs> disgusting. I've got an email here from Louise Brownlee who asks, um, is it true that you've come across cancerous skulls which show that historically humans live with diseases that we might today really not imagine existing with? And if so, does it really tell us something about medicine and palliative care that happened at that time?
8: Uh, yes, it does. And of course, I mean, if you zip back far enough, Neanderthals even 60,000 years ago, they were taking care of each other um, and people were living into a, what would be a very ripe old age in their 50s and 60s a very long time ago indeed, because we're designed to live about 30 years, and so obviously they were being taken care of with a withered arm and a withered leg. When it comes to cancer, for instance, these things turn up, and it reflects the kind of lifestyle they were having, and so cancer only appears in certain built-up groups, living in a... crowded area and there's indications of course that they had surgery of some sort like trepanation for example boring holes in your skull and the champion trepanation chap had 16 operations and survived all of them
3: my goodness that's incredible
8: do do we have any clues as to why they did that did they do it because they happened to believe that there was
2: something evil going on inside this person and therefore accidentally they discovered and stumbled upon drilling holes in people's heads to let the pressure out, but well, they, they thought they were letting out something different, or did they genuinely understand the, the medical basis for drilling holes in people's heads?
8: Well, there are cases of hydrocephalus for example, so people have water on the brain and they, people have drilled holes in the vague hope it might make their heads a normal size and shape, and of course it didn't work. Um, but most cases it's rather hard to figure out, actually. But in uh, the trepanation happened in Africa, for example, up until the 60s and 70s, and there's actually a famous case of a chap called Hat On, Hat Off, who had no skull left above his eyes, at all. His entire skull was missing and his brain was pulsing under the skin. And they'd actually taken out nearly all of his all of his all of his skull over twenty years of operations. And he said the cause was headaches that's why he had it. He did afterwards, that's for sure. Um,
2: John in Norwich would like to know exactly how you work with the mummy. They must be very fragile, he
8: speculates. They're very fragile. I mean, so it really depends on the preservation. Some of them are relatively robust, and I mean relatively. I mean, there's a very good one right here in Cambridge, for example. Um, But generally what you do is um, you have to lay them out and you use endoscopy or uh, radiography to examine what's inside them. And then you do a very minute study of everything that's exposed, look at it under UV light to try and work out tattoos, for example. I found tattooed individuals at my site. And then you you have to go through the face if, if things are showing like teeth and bones are showing you can score the morphological characteristics and the pathology look at their teeth and work out what they ate and then you can look at if maybe if you are lucky work out what they died from take tissue samples send them off a DNA analysis it's quite comprehensive so given all of these analysis and your latest set of
2: excavations in Peru how's this changed your understanding of who these people were who, what they were doing how they got there and where they went Oh, right. Well, that's a big question.
8: Um, quite well, it's actually. four, actually, four, g- you, like you four don't have to answer them all at once. <laughs> I'll do my very best. Um, OK, well, I mean, the thing about improving um, archaeology is that lots of it's to do with the archaeological materials like temples and buildings, pottery, gold and silver and what have you. And so in this case, we're looking at migrations of people from around the place, from the Amazon, from the Andes, even from the Caribbean, coming to this site. And looking at the kind of things that affected them, and so they're dying in their 30s. They were about 4 foot 2, believe it or not, up to about 5 foot 2, 5 foot 3, and so they're really quite short. Just poor diet, did that? Um, maybe, partly. I mean, also, I mean, genetically speaking, there's, uh, people in Peru are generally still fairly short. I mean, I stick out like a sore thumb there, because I'm 6 foot 7, so I have a hell of a time to, uh, trying to get clothes, for instance. But, I mean, yeah, there again, and the diseases that they had, and, of course, we're using isotopes now, so we can work out. People are coming for thousands of miles all the way over South America just to visit this site. And, of course, it's, it's quite impressive in that way. <laughs> we, sort
3: of, we, we, we sort of touched on maybe some of the slightly odd sides of society, and I've actually got an email here from Sam who says, is it true that children were often buried alive? And if so, what can we learn about such behaviour? Is that is that true?
8: I'm afraid it's true. Yes, indeed. I mean, it had some fairly humble beginnings back in like 600 AD-ish. But the people who really loved to love to get their kids and, and do nasty things to them were the Incas, and they would take them up. They would believe they're called capacocha burials, and they would take the, the most perfect child, and it was an honour for the family and for the girl, generally a girl in question. Take her, uh, dress her in her finery, take her up a mountain, generally give her some bitter elixir to drink, which naturally contained a poison, and they would actually. Put her in this tomb, She'd fall asleep because it'd be a, a drug, obviously, and they would literally wall her in and leave her there. So, and that would be the. Uh, were the they offering. actually killing
3: her with the poison, or was they just sort of knocking her out until she. Um, they walled her in and left. Well, <laughs> Gen- <do> Gen-
8: <laughs> well, both both actually occurred. Um, some, some, wow. Sometimes there was blunt force trauma, and so they actually got okay. uh, got hit, and other times they were actually um, they, they just uh, died from the poison itself.
2: Lawrence Owens there from the University of London, and in a second we'll be talking to University of Durham's Keith. Dobney about domestication, how we arrive at the farm animals you see scurrying around on the farm today. It's the Naked Scientist, Dr Chris and Dr Helen, and we're talking now with Keith Dobney, and he's at the University of Durham. Hi, Keith. Hi. Welcome to the Naked Scientist.
1: Now tell me, where does my humble pooch come from? (laughs) That's a very good question and we're not entirely sure because uh, the ancestor of the domestic dog is, as we know now by uh, various studies, including genetics, uh, is spread across the entire Eurasian continent. So it could come from almost anywhere and a lot of the most most recent genetic results have suggested that it was domesticated, probably in Europe, in the Near East and certainly as far away as uh, Southeast Asia, Eastern Asia into China maybe. What does it take to domesticate an animal? Well, that's even more of a difficult question to answer, and it's one that archaeologists and archaeologists have been wrestling with for a long, long time. Originally, we kind of assumed, as, as humans do, that we are in control of everything, so we basically decided, after uh, thousands and thousands of years of uh, hunting and gathering, to go out and domesticate animals because they'd be useful. Uh, And so we were driving the whole process, going out, capturing them, taming them, uh, selecting them uh, genetically for different kinds of things and making them breed with uh, different uh, individuals so that we could actually uh, get different coat colours. But essentially uh, what we realise now, uh, it's a more biological process which may actually be driven by the animals themselves. So the animals are kind of in a mutualistic relationship with humans and they're benefiting hugely from this, uh, this change in their... Um, ecology and the habitats and the feeding so they may have actually been drawn the wild animals themselves, whether it's dogs or pigs or cattle, the wild ones, may have been drawn to humans and human settlements before we even began to think about uh, taming them and using them for our own kind of economic purposes. Because
2: there was a spin-off for them if they came and hung around with us they get free food and, and a degree of protection
1: A huge spin-off for them uh, in terms of uh, evolutionary uh, selectivity. They had an enormous advantage over the ones that came and were tolerating uh, humans nearby and weren't running away quite so fast had a huge advantage over the the same um species the same pigs that were living far away and and, and essentially were wild animals so they were having access to different food more food uh, the presence of humans may have actually kept other kinds of predators away so they had uh, kind of secondary ad- advantages too um, and uh, if you think about domestic animals today, we take them for granted, but they are some of the most successful biological organisms on the planet. They are everywhere. If you think about where sheep are today, and um, where they would have been as wild animals uh, in about 10,000 years ago, they were restricted to a fairly small part of the Near East and Central Asia. Now they are everywhere in the world, and there are billions of
2: them. When do we think that all this major domestication actually happened? What are the key factors that, that meant we could get animals to start uh, growing on farms and that kind of thing?
1: That's a really good question, and and again, it, I could write tons and tons of papers on this, and people have. Um, it seems to have happened around about 9,000 years ago. In uh, Originally, it was thought in one or two places, mainly in the Near East, the kind of cradle of our civilization as we know it today. Uh, but there is evidence that uh, other kinds of animals were being domesticated around about the same time and then later throughout the world. And the same species appears now, although we thought, Differently in the past, uh, like pigs, for example, that I'm interested in and work on uh, a lot, have been domesticated in many places around the world, maybe around about the same time. So, certainly from about 9,000 years ago, which, when you think about it, is an incredibly short period of time, considering how long humans themselves have actually been around on the planet. So, we've been hunting and gathering. Uh, for 3.5 million years, and the last 10,000 years is a tiny blip in terms of a uh, of, uh, change in uh, economics, in, in terms of changing to farming. And the spin-offs of farming and the spin-offs of domestication have been enormous. Look around, uh, there are cities, there is culture, there is civilization. That is all down to this: these series of events that happened r- incredibly recently. So if we were to look
2: at, well, you've given the example of pigs, uh, Keith. Um, If we look at wild boars, which are the ancient ancestors of the pigs of which we rear for our Danish bacon today, what would a cow have looked like if you wind the clock back 9,500 years? What would a sheep have looked like 9,500
1: years ago? You mean a wild one? Hmm. A wild cow, a wild cattle, uh, was, uh, we know now the ancestor of all wild cattle is Bos primigenius, which is the aurochs, and it's now extinct. Unlike the wild boar and the wolf, we still have their um, present day relations on the planet, so we can use those to study the past ones. For things like cattle, and for example, dromedary, single hump cattle, we don't have their um, wild ancestors, they become extinct uh, so we, don't, we can only find their skeletons. Bospin virginia's wild cattle were enormous and incredibly dangerous. Uh, they were certainly around in Eastern Europe until the 16th century. So we know they were enormous from their bones. We know from uh, um, other studies that they were ginormous and, and, and incredibly dangerous. So one of, the, one of the questions is why did early people domesticate something so big and so dangerous? And it may not have been for economic reasons Uh, there are sites in Turkey for example which have uh, wall paintings and temples with these enormous horn cores the horns of these um, ancient wild cattle in what we think are ritual and temple contexts and it may well have been that early domestication of cattle these huge wild animals was for maybe ritual or religious purposes and not for economics at all
2: What about the, the sheep question? Do we know where they came from?
1: Yeah, we do. Um, Sheep still exist as wild boar, so we can see wild sheep. uh, And certainly, again, genetic studies have shown the ancestors to be something called... The scientific name is Ovis orientalis. This is the Asiatic mouflon. And we can still see those in zoos. We can still see them in the wild in parts of the Near East, in higher parts of the Fertile Crescent, in uh, areas like uh, the Zagros Mountains, in uh, northern Iran, Armenia, places like that. They're quite rare now, and they would have been in the past... um, same for goats. Goats were more or less uh, restricted to the same range uh, as, the, as the wild sheep, the ancient uh, bees goat with the very, very large horns. Uh, all domestic goats today uh, derive from that.
2: And just very briefly, Keith, one final question. People are very interested in bird flu at the moment for obvious reasons, and where we think we spawned that from was was wild birds, in fact aquatic birds. So when would that put the origin of human flu? Because for humans to get flu, they must have been very close to wild birds for a, a significant period of time
1: wow, that's a question and a half. Um, I was interested in listening to Lawrence earlier in terms of uh, diseases that humans get. Obviously, this whole process of... Uh, animals becoming closer uh, in relationship to humans in terms of domestication. So we're, we're controlling them, we're holding them, we're keeping them penned, we're working, we're handling them more, we're in much more close proximity. He mentioned tuberculosis, for example, and one of the ideas may be that tuberculosis in humans may actually uh, be such a problem because it derives from um, animals, certainly uh, diseases that are found in animals, things called zoonoses, like... Um, viruses like tuberculosis, like a whole range of other things, uh, may be originated very, very early and may originated and, and be the result of this close contact. Bird flu, the problem with uh, those kinds of things, we just cannot see the, uh, the uh, effects on the skeleton, so all we're looking at are bones. So we can only find the viruses or maybe the, uh, the, the uh, genetics of DNA through uh, the actual individuals themselves. So the bones don't tell us this, unfortunately. Keith, thanks very much.
3: Well, as if we had dug up enough this week, we're now to hear about a unique dinosaur skull found in Mongolia by the world renowned paleontologist Ang Antangere- oh, I knew I get this wrong. Perlay, sorry. His trip to the UK has been organised by a charity called Scientific Expedition Society, and Dr. Perlay, who has eight dinosaurs named after him, by the way, is giving people the opportunity to view an incredibly rare eighty two million year old skull. So earlier this week, naked scientist Anna Lacey went to see the skull and found out why wh- find out from Cape. University's Laura Poro why it is that it's so important.
9: We have two species of a very rare family of dinosaurs called Therizinosaurus. This first skull that we have here which is a beautiful three-dimensionally preserved skull as you can see uh, is an animal called Ehrlichosaurus from Mongolia. Um, The two smaller lower jaws over there belong to this skull Okay, so going back to the skull here, yeah, we can see it's 3D, but uh, is that such a big surprise? Uh, Yes, it is. Uh, With dinosaur skulls, this type of preservation is very rare. Um, Usually, skulls get crushed. The bones, you can see where there is a junction here between the bones. They tend to fall apart and are scattered, and we lose bits and pieces. To find a skull like this, where not only is everything articulated, all the bones are still connected, but it's also avoided being crushed or damaged damaged in any way is really extraordinary. Well, it's absolutely fascinating. I held it earlier. It's it's quite light. But Laura, I believe there's some rather interesting work going on with it later this week. Yes, hopefully later this week, the skull will undergo some CT scanning, which will let us capture the the 3D shape of the skull. Now, this is being done in collaboration with Bristol University, which Dr. Perlet visited earlier this week. Once it's scanned, we'll look at bite forces and how the skull behaves mechanically. And that's something you can only do with a three-dimensional skull like this. This is why the three-dimensional preservation is so important. So what kind of food would a dinosaur like this have eaten? We think that this thing was a transition animal between um, meat-eating dinosaurs and a, a family of plant-eating dinosaurs that arose out of this. And it's, it's got features of both. So it was possibly an omnivore, possibly a herbivore, but it certainly wasn't... Uh, dedicated meat-eater anymore. And, and how do you know that? When you look at the skull, we have these features. Um, for instance, its teeth aren't the teeth of a carnivore. It's, it doesn't have these big knife-like teeth like, say, a T-Rex does. It has instead these small peg-like teeth with just these very small serrations, which we see in reptiles that cut up plant material. And also at the very front of the snout. There's no teeth at all. There's just this toothless beak. You could see this sharp edge that would have created this beak-like structure, like we see in modern birds or modern turtles is an even better example, uh, for cutting away at plant material. So does this mean this could have been an ancestor to to birds of some kind? Uh, Well, it's... It is in a big group of dinosaurs, a group called the maniraptorans, and that includes things like t- Tyrannosaurus rex and Velociraptor and also birds. So it is in the group with the birds. However, birds didn't come directly out of this line of animals. Um, it would have been nice to see where this experiment in, in herbivory would have gone, but this animal occurs very late, at the very end of the age of the dinosaurs, and so the experiment is stopped short when the dinosaurs go extinct.
3: That was Cambridge University's Laura Porrow talking to Anna Lacey about an incredibly rare three-dimensional dinosaur skull found in Mongolia.
2: Fancy listening to the
1: naked scientists in your bed, (laughs) on your way to work, or even at work? Why not subscribe to our podcast? For more information, visit
2: nakedscientists.com forward slash podcast and maker scientists with dr chris and dr helen helen you've got some some updates on our teaser that's
3: right we're having quite a few uh, as you say speculations about what might be the reason for the word mummy we've had things like wrapped in, it means wrapped in bandages it's the word for mummification not quite right You're, you have got a few more minutes if you think you have an idea of what it might be where the word mummy comes from um, so give us a call um, 08459 go on give it a go you might get it right
2: Got a question for you Lawrence this is from Andy Hughes on the A120 and he says in the film Alexander a man is injured in battle and after being told he fought bravely a surgeon walks up behind him hits him on the top of the neck with a hammer and chisel killing him quickly and cleanly in order to make his mummification easier would things like that have happened
8: Um, I've never seen any cases quite like that, but the the spirit of it is certainly true. I mean, in many cases, they would uh, do their very best to keep the body as perfect as possible, thinking that somehow the better it was, the more likely it was to pass to a better existence, either above ground or below, depending on your beliefs. But uh, I haven't heard of that particular case, but I'll keep looking just in case.
2: I've also got a question here from John, who's actually listening to us on our podcast in Hong Kong. He says he sent his question to the British Museum several months ago, but the only reply he received was an acknowledgement to the question being forwarded to some experts. He'd like to ask us instead. He said, since mathematics seems to be the foundation of all modern science, I want to know at what stage in our evolution did, did humans first begin to count?
8: Now, this is going to be a complicated one, so we haven't got very long, but I'll keep it short, I promise. Um, Well, basically, it has to do with, we believe, although it's obviously speculation to an extent, is all to do with complexity of the human brain and living in large groups, particularly in the Upper Paleolithic, about 25,000 or so years ago. It may have happened before that, but we've got no evidence for it. And it basically seems to be the case that they have mathematical, to an extent, i.e. dots and swirls, and very mathematically a line, sort of ways on bits of ivory and bone on the walls of caves and they were probably keeping track of time parting time, the number of days in a month and so forth it must be very important not to miss an ice age coming or to miss the reindeer herds coming so this would be something to link with that, we think
2: just like to bring Keith Dobney in here because it's my understanding, Keith, that dogs uh, are known to have a primitive sense of counting and so do wolves, probably because they're pack animals, is that right? <laughs>
1: I've no idea to be honest but uh, certainly pack animals have a much more heightened behaviour particularly carnivores who have to actually hunt so there's a a very keen need for communication a keen need for knowing uh, where things are going to be a keen need for picking out individuals in a herd to actually kill.
2: Because one, th- one thing, people have done simple experiments where uh, you take a dog's bowl, you show it three pieces of food going in, but then you surreptitiously slip a couple out, and then when you release a screen and show the dog how much food is actually in its bowl and the numbers don't add up, the dog seems to show surprise, according to some scientists. Do you, do you not think that's reasonable?
1: But don't forget the sense of smell is, uh, is a thousand times better than ours, so I suspect it's <laughs> something to do with that rather than to do with their acumeny with, um, with maths. My horse can can carrots, that's for sure. <laughs> Thanks, Keith.
2: Now, we've got uh, Richard on the phone, who reckons he knows the answer to our mummy challenge. Hello, Richard. Hi there. Thank you for joining us uh, on The Naked Scientist. Um, Our challenge tonight was, why are Egyptian mummies called mummies? What do you think?
5: Well, apparently the the Arabs, uh, when they discovered the Egyptian mummies in the 7th century, thought they were covered in tar. But in fact, they were uh, coated in um, a dark resin. But um, it looks like the the word mummy is derived from the Persian Arabic word... um, Nummier.
2: So, Lawrence, uh, has, has Richard got this right, and what is the basis of mummification?
8: Um, he does have it right, indeed. It's from mummai, and it is the, um, it's a bitumen-rich sediment, which comes from around, mainly from around the side of the Dead Sea, very high in minerals, and it does have a certain preserving effect on bodies, and it, that was what was used in the olden days for mummification, so well done.
2: Well done, Richard. You're the proud owner now of a mud-powered clock provided by Noisemakers at noisemakers.org.uk. <laughs> Thank you very much. Uh, you were right. Thank you. Do we know why these people wanted to mummify bodies in the first place? That, that's always this eluded people trying to understand it, hasn't it?
8: Well, as far as we can make out, they wanted to be eternal, and they believed that once you passed to a higher plane, you would be able to rejoin all your antecedents and so forth and make sure you were able to join your group. And so they wanted to be as much as you were to this, in this life, in the next life. Therefore, they kept you looking the same way. They gave you your slaves and all your household goods, all piled it in together. And so, therefore, we think that's something to do with a sense of the eternal, and all of their books in Egypt written about the Book of the Dead the Book of the Immortals and so on. So they really were very obsessed with this idea and I think it probably stems from that.
2: I think it's surprising that the Egyptians, Imhotep, who was an Egyptian physician, knew all about the importance of the brain in movement, because he, he recorded in his main, famous surgical papyrus that if you press through someone's skull, where they've had a skull injury, and they've got a hole in their skull, and you press the brain, then you can make the person tremble if terribly. In other words, you could probably trigger an epileptic fit. Yet the Egyptians didn't seem to care
8: about the brain, did they? They
2: just scooped it out through the nose when they decided to dispatch with you after you were dead and
8: they were going to turn you into a mummy. Well, they reckoned that the real soul of the person lived in the heart, and so the heart was important more important and therefore all the other bits and pieces were in canopic jars around the body but the heart always came back and so that was really more of a spiritual sense rather than a medical sense that they believed that the, uh, the brain, that the heart was important and they may have understood the brain but wasn't as important to them.
2: And, and this question of blackness,
8: um, was, it, was it just Egyptian mummies that went black, or did all mummies go black just because of the drying? Um, well, I mean, it really depends on the mummification method, and of course there's too many different versions, because they mummified all over the world. But I mean, in the case of Egypt, because the, the, the colour of the sediments was fairly, fairly dark, they did go that way, but other parts of the world, like Chile, for example, they didn't. In fact, they were often painted red and white and blue and other colours. But uh, in that case, yes, they were, so...
2: Thank you, Lawrence. That's Lawrence Owens, who's from the University of London, joining us on this week's Naked Sciences. We were just pretty much out of time. So it just remains for me to say a very big thank you to Lawrence Owens. Also to Keith Dobney from the University of Durham, who joined us to talk about the domestication of animals. To Helen Scales, who helped to present this week. Thanks thank you for doing a wonderful long. job. Fun That's as wonderful. Thank you, Petro Minch, for producing this week's show. Now, next week it's our QA show. So if you've got any science questions, including baffological, biological enigmas, some chemical conundra, or you're foxed by a bit of physics, then please send them to us it's chris at nakedscientist.com and we'll do our best to solve them for you in the meantime for more science news give the nature podcast a listen that's at nature.com forward slash nature forward slash podcast and for some more fertile and fruitful chat about science why not frequent our discussion forum it's just on the web waiting for you to come and see it nakedscientist.com forward slash forum once again thank you very much for listening until next week goodbye